earn with your mind, not with your time. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sasson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Terrence Kennel. Terrence is a strength and conditioning rehab coordinator for the Houston Astros. And today on the podcast, we kind of dove into his approach to rehab and how we can be better on the front end in the performance aspect side of things and grabbing a low fruit that's in front of us and building environments and building adaptable athletes to where he doesn't have to see them in the rehab side. He can work with them in the performance side and how we can kind of set up the strength conditioning world and the sports performance world in a way in a way to where there is no more disconnect. There is no more silos. And we've, we've talked about it with a couple of the chiropractors that have come on. But it was a really cool perspective from someone that is working with it in the day-to-day and has some of the coaching aspects well as, as well as some of the rehab aspects. And I, I think Terrence's role is, is pretty cool and how he gets to see everything that's going on as well as he, he talks about his wide range of athletes that he works with and all of these experiences and all of these things and how he's able to draw upon them and kind of – create his program and how he views the world of sports performance. Hopefully you guys get something out of this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. All right. Well, coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Do you I, want to I, like, live, I like live to the standard. You've got a lot of really great guests on, so I'll do what I can. And we're we're going to keep the train rolling here. <laughs> do you want to tell the listeners kind of a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got into the world of sports performance and how you got to the point you're at today? Yeah, so uh, as Terrence Kennel, everyone's called me TK. I did my undergrad at Arkansas State, where I played rugby there as well. Uh, did my postgraduate at St. Mary's University in, in, in the UK, in England. And then I kind of started coaching at when I was 20. I think my sophomore year of college when I started coaching. And it was kind of more of a thing. I just, I just loved – I love training personally. And I saw a benefit to have on myself. But also I just fell in love with the process of seeing someone kind of just get better. Like not even so much the end result. Like the end result is always great. Like you love to see players win. You love to see athletes win. And I think people achieve their goals. But like that, seeing every step of that process and building them up to that point has always like intrigued me. But that's probably why I got into – into coaching in general, like whether it be uh, a little bit of sport coaching that I've done with basketball or like SNC and like sports performance side. And this uh, this kind of approach, and this is something I'm interested in. And one of the coworkers that I work with has very kind of similar background of you of he kind of has the blend of both worlds and getting people better rather than just because I, I, I kind of see it as the same kind of light of not getting people getting people better rather than kind of out recruiting them. And you, you kind of see that in the American football world of like, uh, you kind of see the sports coach's job as like out recruiting the players that you have and the kind of the strength coach's job as like building up the players that you have. And I, yeah. I like your point of like, you're, you like seeing the players like get better and like recover from some of the things that they have. Yeah. And kind of where that is taken and how is it, how it's allowed you to get that kind of outside look at the world of sports performance and strength conditioning. Yeah. A big one was just like, I think someone that's loving the process, but also I like under, I like seeing like a bigger picture than just like player to player or just coach to coach. So you see all the time, like I've gone down this rabbit hole with some of our friends who work in college football. We're just like, and what will make a good point of the college football is like, they don't really have, it's not programs. A lot of college, regardless of just sport programs, really. It's really the coach's program. When the coach leaves, that program and system all goes with them. And so then you see the opposite when you're over like in the UK, um, in like European countries where they have like these big academy setups. And then they hire coaches almost to more fit that kind of system, that style. So it's not this constant influx of like 
we play this way for three years, then play a whole other way for three years. And then what we're trying is constantly switching players to match it. And the first two years are going to be terrible because the players in the old system, I learned the new system. And it's like, you realize like that's such an inefficient way of actually doing things. And, and especially for the players in this, cause I, I've seen that, I've, I've seen that brought up on the Twitter world too, about how the, how the coaches, and it, it's an interesting, it's something that I've actually wanted to talk about a little bit. So it, it, I like that you brought it up because it's interesting because, because as coaches, if, if we're going to talk business model and we're going to talk like value that you bring, you kind of want to set it up and you are given a benefit to set it up to where the system revolves around you. The system is your yeah. system. You bring it places and that's what you get paid to do. Yeah. But as a system and for the players and for like the overall good, you know, like you would want it to be the other way. You would want it to be fitting the culture of the college, you know, but like when you yeah. talk about culture, even like the culture is usually brought in by the coach. And yeah, I, I, it's just an interesting talking point because we talk all the time in the strength conditioning world about like not getting paid, like your value, you know, like not getting paid mm -hmm. your worth and trying to find a way to get paid your worth. And I feel like the sport coach found a way to do it, but is it really the best way to do it? You know, like the yeah. sport coaches are getting paid that big money because they're able to go in there and bring in their culture and bring in their thing. But is it now they're getting paid for it, but is it best for the program? You know, is it best for the yeah. players when it's that constant turnover? I think that's part of the reason why I see, even more so now than before because like the waivers things are some like seems a much easier process to transfer. And you see so many players transfer all the time. Because like, yeah, they came in, the idea of playing a system that's gonna fit them and now as a new coach. And now it's like this five even this five stack player is now leaving and go somewhere else. It's like, is it is it the coach, is it too much trying to change system? Is it the player? I think typically people blame the player, like, oh the player didn't wanna didn't want to fit in or didn't want to learn a new process. It's like, well, the player didn't agree to come. The player agreed to come to play for a certain system that fit him as a player. At the end of the day, it's about the player's performance. It's not about us as like coaches and players fitting our system. It's like we got to make it fit to the players we have. Well, and that, I mean, you want a straight example that you talk about like Joe Burrow, like yeah. I mean, talking about, yeah, you can blame him on the coaches for how many years, but then you find the system that it works and now he's getting paid millions and millions of dollars and was the number yeah. one draft pick. So, like, yeah, what's Kyle Murray last night? Exactly, and, and like yeah, A&M at first, and he was like, "This isn't for me." So going went to went to OU. And what kind of like, and then you have to think about what kind of system do you want to set it up? Because everybody talks about they they say on the outside like it's for the players, it's for this, and then when something doesn't happen, it, it's the players' fault. Like it's never the coach's fault, yeah. it's never the system's fault. You know, yeah. like then it turns down to the players, and like, well, what kind of system are you setting up there? Like you, you say all the right things, but is that actually what you mean? Is is that actually what you're implementing? Hundred percent. You find it's always. I think I've seen. I may have maybe it's, maybe it's a bit jaded idea, but I've always seen it's more so in sports of just. It's easy. A lot of people say all the right things, and then when it comes down to actually doing those things, like you see the opposite. Like you coaches all the time will preach culture and you never want to say, but like, is it? It's only culture only matters when it's maybe your second string player that fucks up. But what about when it's your starter that fucks up? All of a sudden, it's a different rule set, and so it's just like, what's the person are you really setting here? And so. Before, because we're probably going to get off the tracks here already. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're driving through um, into the conspiracy world of the of the college sector. And I will talk about this all day. But now you, you talk about doing the right things. And we, we talk about trying to set up the culture and the system. How are you, how do you approach this in the best of your abilities as a, a rehab specialist, as a, as a strength conditioning coach, as like what your role is? Like, how, how do you approach that in the best way? I think within like the rehab set, the only within within my job, a big one is common language between my director, the physical therapist I work alongside, his assistant, like us having common language, and then 
setting expectations and having a meeting with like our entire rehab group because within baseball because we have rehabbers from major league all the way down to latin american academy and so our group will be really anywhere from 17 to sometimes 25 and like we'll have like an open honest meeting of like hey like these are expectations of like of being here because a lot of the guys in baseball be tommy john so a lot of them are gonna be there for about a year and so like hey like in this year you're gonna get tired of seeing my fucking face 100 percent you are <laughs> i'm gonna get tired of seeing you guys face sometimes i was like but these are expectations not only for you guys but you guys hold us accountable to these so like being on time wearing the right thing like all those little things um you know i understand every day is not gonna be your best day every day not gonna come in and want to work hard i'm gonna have days where i'm gonna feel like feel like shit i'm tired like um i don't want to be there that day but it's up to, up to us up to us as a group and as each other to hold each other accountable in that sense and so like i've had i've had players call me out and say like tk you're tired today like <laughs> i'm like you're right 100 like i am tired like i'm worn out and but that um that kind of role and the the, the way that you set it up though because i feel like i'm very similar and i I, I say this in a sense, like I, it's kind of easier for me in a sense because I'm younger. So I, I relate to like a lot of my players. Like I'm yeah. three to four years older than my players. I, I relate to them. So I don't want to like shit on any of the older coaches out there. Like I understand yeah, it's yeah. easier for my role to be like that. But what that does is like open up communication on both ways, you know, like now instead of just being that dictatorship role where that player is going to come in and try and hide stuff from you or just, you know, like you get to have that conversation with them. Like, Oh, you didn't sleep well. Oh, you did the, like, now you do feel like ass, like, let's not just send this rather than like yeah. the, the the coach that's going to sit there and just scream at you the entire time. You're going to go in there and pretend like, Oh, I, I slept my eight hours. I did everything. Like, I'm just going to push through this. And then you yeah. kind of, and I'm all for hard work. I'm all for grinding. Like I understand that aspect, but you're also going to lose that player or like do something with that player that you probably shouldn't have that day, just because you're not willing to open up that conversation with them. Yeah, and be willing to have like honest conversations about hey, how are you actually feeling? What's what kind of other stresses are going on in your life? Because like for rehab guys, they're down there for this you know, nice 10 plus months. Shit, like they won't. I had a player who literally just went back to Venezuela. He hadn't been home in 11 months. He's 17 years old. Like he he celebrated his 18th birthday on FaceTime with me. He was like, he's in quarantine in a hotel. And he was rehabbing the hotel. And it's like, man, like, that's, that takes a play into someone's training. Like, even when we started back camp and he was back in. Like every day I was asking him, like, how's, oh, how's your family doing? How's your mom doing? And every day I was like, man, this has been 11 months. Like, that's a long time when you're 17 to be away from your family. Yeah, and and this is something that I think is unique to you, and I'd like to hear kind of your perspective on it, but you have, like, a very wide range of athletes, you know? Like, in in my sector, like, I'll, I'll get athletes from, like, mostly the Midwest, uh, but they're yeah. all, like, college guys. They're all the same age, you know? Like, they're all – similar skill sets, but I feel like you get a very, very wide range of athletes coming to you and with like very wide range of issues and things are coming to you with like, what is your, what is your process like of working through that? Is it just developing that relationship like individually or like, like what is, and maybe what has it taught you? Because it's something that I think you have that a lot of coaches don't have that experience with of that huge array of athletes. A big one is that it's being, being open and honest and asking questions. And for me coming in, especially coming, I would, I would tell players up front, like day one, like two years ago that, hey, like I'm not a baseball person. Like, I don't come from baseball. So like, I'm going to say plenty of lingo wrong. I'm, just, <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm going to ask you, it seems like dumb questions and it's like, makes no sense. But like, it's because I'm genuinely don't know. And so I think being honest about, hey, like, I don't know. When players ask me questions, or they say, oh, TJ, can I ask you a question? Like my answer is always like, maybe answer, no promises. Cause that's, that's literally what it is. Like, I can't guarantee, I can never guarantee you an answer. And I want you to, I don't want you to ever think I have all the answers, but I know I don't. 
and then I think come from that side and asking players their background. Like I'm, I've been notorious now for like I don't ask players really in the off season about their training that much. Like I'll, I'll ask them if I care, but like I said, most of my time asking, oh, like how's your sister doing? How's like your brother? How's your mom and dad? How was the family vacation you guys all went on? So I'm like those things. At the end of the day, those things are gonna last longer than you playing baseball. How's like your wife doing? Support that. How are your kids? If you have kids, like all those things are so important. So I think that's helped a lot. And players feel like I'm not coming to them from this like overarching organization. I'm not just coming and texting them how's training going, send some videos of the training or whatever, like or asking them what, what like why are you being lazy today? What the fuck's wrong with you? It's like I'm asking like, hey, like. Like, what did you have for dinner last night? Oh, you went to this restaurant. How was it? I heard it was kind of shit. Oh, I thought it was okay. Like, it's, it's like stupid, some like stupid little conversations like that, but it builds like a bigger trust. And then, so, so you're able to build this communication and kind of break down that the little bit of a barrier that you have between the like the 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 coaching role and and the player mm-hmm. role and make it less of like a a dictatorship. And yeah. now, now now you're on your level, like what is what is your approach then like like what is kind of the what behind how you approach the rehab and performance kind of center because it's something i'm interested in is how you how you blend the both of these worlds how you move both these worlds forward and how you make it so they don't need a bunch of rehab because their performance is good and then if we're coming out of rehab how is like how on the performance sector can we do a better job you know like to where it's less siloed less like one coach and saying something one like in one ear to this player and then the, the yeah. strength coach telling them this thing and then they're like throwing arm is being torn apart because two guys are telling <laughs> two different things and it's more about ego rather than the athlete yeah i think the biggest one is having one-on-one communication like with whoever like the eighth whether it be at pt and having direct communication of like hey like what what are your expectations what are kind of your standards what do you what do you want to see out of this person if it's surgical what do you want to see out of this person before be able to train back in the gym. Um, and then also, what's our common language? What are we establishing as, okay, if they injured in the left leg, so they had ACL surgery on the left leg. All right, instead of telling me what we can't do, like tell me what he can do. Like, can, you, can we still train his right leg? Can we train his trunk? Can we train uh, post, like posterior uh, glute? Can we train upper body? Like all those, and coming to the framework of like, he can do all those things safely. We can. We can program it where it's all going to be safe. His left leg is going to be fine. But also you can come to the framework of if we don't attack those other areas, they become very deconditioned and they set him up for him or her up for failure, like down the line in another part of the body. Yeah. And and that's yeah. something that I, I, I really have appreciated with bringing on so a lot of chiropractors and a lot of rehab specialists that, that approach it in that way of like, what can you do? Because you see yeah. that athlete that is injured, like he's already been told and he feels his body know all the things that he can't do. Like he yeah. wakes up every day with that, like ACL or shoulder. And like, he, he understands what he can't do. He does not need somebody yeah. else in there, like breaking it down to him. Like, Hey, you can't do this. And it, it's, it's kind of amazing what happens when you tell that athlete, like, Hey, I understand you have this. I understand that's not great, but look at this, like look at all of these things we can work on during this time and just yeah. to see how quickly they pick that up and how quickly that kind of like helps the spirit and the rest of it. And like you said, like it also, like when they come back now, they, they are better than what happened before, you know? Yeah, exactly. I've always, always t- attack rehab and approach of when we tell players, it's like, I don't want you to come back like the same as you really got in, but I want you to like, this is a chance for you to get, get better. But if you have a, especially if you have a long-term surgical things like shoulder, a knee, elbows, like this is a chance to come back faster, stronger, more powerful, 
throwing harder. It's like, let's use this opportunity. And you're like, when are you ever getting this chance? Like you probably never get this, hopefully never get this chance ever again, really. Where you can have no games to worry about, no no real practices to worry about. You just focus kind of on yourself and like your own training. Like that really happens. And I think that's when you see so many like kind of, me and our friend Zach at the year talked about this, where you see these like phenomenal games in the rehab process. And it's because like there's not stress from practice, stress from games, pulling pulling the body in the system so many different directions. It's like, hey, like, this is a chance to come back, like come back fucking better. Like, let's like, let's do it. And then having another thing that helps in that rehab in terms of with the medical staff is having having like classification of phases. And so like we've classified as like restoration, preparation, realization, and retention. So obviously restoration is that early stage. That's that like post-surgical, we're working on acute responses like swelling, wound healing, all those other things. And then once I pass that, my general function and range. But once I pass that, we can go into more function and strength of that preparation phase. And that's like your longest stage, realistically, that we have. Because that's like you're getting full function of like those tissues and those joints that have been damaged. Um, you're going to build up all your strength back up in those weak areas. And that's going to be usually like your longest stage at that mid stage. And that's the part also where it's the worst, usually, because that's where like guys, they feel good, they feel really good, and they feel like they take on the world. But then, like, they have, but then we introduce something new and they suck at it. They may have, have a bit of pain, even maybe a bit of like an acute response, and they get frustrated. They're like, oh, I feel so good. Why am I not ready to play it? It's like, we're just not there yet. And then it goes to that realization phase, which is that power, speed, and elasticity. And that's that end stage of like, we're, like, we're, moving, like, we're producing force fast, we're running fast. The very end stage is like, we're doing cutting, reaction based stuff. Like, we're doing, we're definitely going on that skill drill chaos continuum, and we're deep in that chaos realm. And that's that like super late stage return to play. And then retention is, I tell everybody when they don't rehab, I never want to see them again. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I don't want to see you again until spring training next year when you're, like, you're coming in and you're throwing 98. Stuff like that. Well, like you hit all the fourth position player coming in and you have an XV low of 110 miles. Well, that's, that's the only time I want to see. I want to see you down here and rehab ever again. And this is, and that's something that I, I want to ask you about is how then can we do a better job on the front end? And I, you, I like how you mentioned, like it's part of it is just that they're able to uh, focus that amount of time on themselves and build themselves up. And maybe it is a little bit of your low hanging fruit approach to training, but like how can on the front end, we not have them see you regardless, like not have yeah. them come to you broken. So where we can actually just focus on this performance aspect rather than sending you broken athletes and then you fixing yeah. them and then building them up. So like, you don't have to see them again. Like what, what, what do you think we can do in that aspect? I think within sports that are more like generally more chaotic, like a football, basketball, soccer, I think it's a combination of like preparing the body for preparing the body and tissues for extreme ranges higher speeds, high, higher velocities, uh, and like higher force. And that's something that just comes with just general good training. But I think something that's missed in like those more chaos-based sports that's, that goes away, that's not the sport practice, is like that chaos end. Like something I learned from working with Kira, working with like Tom Farrow over in England, working with Kira in Japan was like the skill drill chaos continuum. And we actually we use that same continuum now, even with the Astros within our sprinting. And I'm like my boss now, Dan Howes, who's just come back to England, like he preaches as well. And so that skill drill chaos, like skills, like that's that basic, it's a basic like lateral shuffle, if you will. All right. And then the drill is maybe a one-step cut, maybe a lateral shuffle between like the five-yard five-yard line and zero-yard line. Um, and then and maybe the drill even has like one reactionary component. And then the chaos is where it exactly is. Like it looks messy. I think it's harder for coaches to wrap their mind around because it's not – 
pretty to look at and it looks like a mess and people fail and people should fail like within it. And that's where you get Chinese guys to do what they're on Instagram. Uh, James Smith posts a lot of that stuff on, on his Instagram and like, you know, like tag games and chase and chase games and like people hiding the ball, you know, find the person with the right ball and all those other things. And that's where you, you can use some of that um, like constraints, constraints of your freedom, like ecological dynamics, things like that and dynamical systems theory and just using like varying the constraints a bit more to get the outcome you want. So exposing players to more and more chaos that's away from the actual sport. So even if it's just like a capture flag, a game, a game of tag or things like that, where they're responding to maybe one stimulus, maybe it's one V one first, then it's one V two, then it's two V two, one V three. They have to respond and do something and be, be comfortable in that chaotic environment. Like I don't know if within team sport we do that enough. I think that's where, that's why we tend to see a lot of people tend to get injured in those more chaotic like, environments of the game, whether it be because of change of possession quickly, they're having to react at the last minute, whether it be another defender they didn't see coming out of nowhere, like those kind of things. So I think more exposure to that not sexy looking end of sport performance is will probably be very helpful for a lot of players. Because it's just it's just hard. It's one thing you can't, I don't think there's a way to, that I know of anyway, that like you can objectify and how you know for sure someone's gotten better at it it just takes of like you watching them compete in their sport also and then also the thing of like you can't control it because it's not because it's so messy and players are going to fail like players are going to step the wrong way players are going to miss a tag players are going to make the wrong decision it looks like they should because in a game that's what happens too like you must make mistakes in the game before in a million miles an hour yeah, if, if you're not failing in this, so I talk to my players all the time because, like you said, like if they have a bad day and they'll get pissed, it's like, man, like if you're not failing in the environment that we put you in, if you're not failing in this game and everything we do, like just builds you up, it's too easy and it has nothing to do with like the sport that you're about to go play, you know, like, so what are you, what are you paying me for? Like, why, why are we doing this if it's not preparing you for your sport? And I 100% agree. And I like... The, the, the side of this is like, yeah, you'll hear people say is like, like, let the sport practice take care of it. Like, let sport practice take care of it. And I was like, have you watched like what a, what a sport practice looks like? You know, like, have, yeah. have you watched it? Because even then it's, it's very skill and drill based, you know, like yeah. even then it, it's not chaos. And yeah. in, in the chaos realm, it's not just straight chaos, but you, you, you get to build these environments in your training. And I think I'm 100% on the same page as you up to where you can work on Maybe it is a change of possession for that day. Like you get to expose mm-hmm. them to a hundred changes of possession in that day because yeah. that's your focus of the day or a hundred scoring sessions, a hundred zone covered sessions, you know, but you yeah. so much more in like one session than they'll see in any sport practice that they have. And yeah. now like when they see it in a game, it's like, oh, all right, I've already seen this, you know, like I've already been through mm-hmm. this. It's not, it's not the first time somebody's intercepted the ball. I've had to cut and like yeah. try to make that tackle, you know? I was like the closet the quote, I, don't know, I have no idea where I got it from, but um. I know I stole from somewhere, but it's like you can't you can't master the environment you don't have it. And it's a serious life. You've never been exposed to it, and everything's always been pretty insistent. Like kind of you said, like sometimes sport practice is always like, oh, I need perfect reps, and it's just like but it never happens in a game. In a game, it's it's rarely ever perfect. Maybe perfect once out of the entire game. Like, but so we need to be comfortable and be like, oh, okay, yeah, we failed that rep. Like that's gonna happen in a game. When every game we're gonna drive, we're gonna drive drive the football down the field, like and have have a six minute possession. Sometimes you're gonna have a couple three and outs first. <laughs> like, and, and like you said, like can 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 you do that in practice? And one one thing I always bring it up, like people are gonna be sick of me bringing it up, but it's like the the example, like the linebacker that's like told a million times in practice to have the perfect drop to the three yard line or to the three yards back, like 45 degree, that perfect drop. And I'm like, 
man, you, you run that linebacker drop in a game and that slant goes four yards. It's like, you're screwed. You look like an idiot as a linebacker. So like, you know, like, like the, the perfect, I think we just need, like you said, like get out of that perfect mindset a little bit and understand, take a step back and let loose on the reins a little bit of like what sport practice should look like, you know, like, and like what we're actually preparing them for and realize like, it's not our perfect skill. It's not our perfect drill. It's not the military robot. Like we're building athletes, not robots. Yeah. hundred percent. I think sports, I think the more, so kind of the more regimen your sport is naturally, like football, because there's like those set plays and everything, it makes it harder for coaches to kind of like let go of those reins a little bit. Like we were, I was quite lucky in the team I worked with in, in rugby back in back in England. Like our a lot of our practices were 15 on 15, full field practice, and it'd be messy. Like it almost it'd be like almost like a scrimmage sometimes, but it wasn't full contact. It was barely it was like more like a wrap. So that that saved us for one because it took a lot of boxes from a fitness point of view. Like we covered a lot of conditioning boxes because we're spending if it's a 90 minute practice, we're probably spending a good 60 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes of like full field 15 on 15 rugby. And like teams like really ever I mean, any teams ever do that. And like that's gonna cover more boxes of fitness than us just like doing tempo runs or doing mass or doing repeat sprint. Because like that's the game. That's the stuff that makes you tired. <laughs> And so I, in this, cause I think I'm very much me, myself, like my bias is more towards the chaos realm and more towards implementing it. And I think it is because I am in the American football realm where everything is structure. So like, I'm trying to expose them to the exact opposite. Where do you see the benefits of still implementing these skills and drills that the chaos doesn't give them? Uh, I think it's definitely early on. I think you should always have elements of skills and drills because there is that like just biomechanical truce essentially of like, hey, like, there, are, there are more better ways to move. And some I heard, I think Dan Paps there, of like, there's most efficient ways to move and every individual athlete will have their own bandwidth within that realm of moving, of, of like of like moving well. Because like anthropometrics, um, left, left side strong versus right side stronger, like things like that. But when you teach them those like biomechanical truths that are efficient, and as things speed up, there'll be some variation. But as long as it's not a variation that's awful and that's super inefficient, then you can always tick box. You can always go back to that skill drill stuff. And the stuff just looks, if they're not getting it, they can always regress back to that skill and drill section. And then how, how are we measuring Like, cause this is something I struggle with. Like my, my, what I see, like my job is to is expose them to as many skills in a way mm-hmm. as possible and then allow them to drop on those skills just so they have like a large yeah. toolbox. Like I, my, yeah, my goal is not to force them to like do this spin move or this juke or whatever move it is like like I want to show you that I want to show you the ability I want to ha- make sure you have that ability but you draw upon like like maybe like that bandwidth you know like you draw upon what you feel comfortable what you feel is right we'll look back on film like see if that was the right decision or not but yeah. continue to grow that like how 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 do you go about growing that without making it like going back to that that perfect like you need to do it this way, you know, like you need to do it this mm-hmm. way. This is my skill. Like, this is what it's going to lead to. Like, how, how do you balance that? I think a big one's like, once you, I constantly work on those basic skills and drills, but then starting to shape uh, like chaos in shape the environments to get that, get the, get closer to the outcome you want. So if you want them to do a cut off their right foot, shape it an environment and a drill to where they have to react to something, even if it's just one stimulus, like one person or something like that coming to try and tag them. It kind of gets them closer to where they're more likely 
to step off their right foot. It's never going to be perfect all the time. Sometimes it's still going to step off their wrong foot. It's not still going to look ugly, like just the way it is. But you know, the streets have to mold that environment. I think that's where that, oh, it's, it's like not ecological diet, but it's like basically constraints over freedom, essentially forcing constraints that allow you to then do the outcome you kind of want to see early on. Yeah, for sure. And that, that that's something that I, I, I really enjoy of, it's kind of cool to see like the athlete pick up on these things too, you know, yeah. like, like you're working on it, working on it. And then you see them busted out in a game and, and they know right away too, which is kind of cool. It's like, yeah. uh, you've been working on it in the a smaller environments, the smaller, like chaos based games over and over. And then finally, like when it gets to a larger base, like that same simu- uh, situation, if you're doing your job, like we'll pop up in a game and they bust it out or like, holy crap, like it actually works. I'm like, yeah, like, like that's what we're trying for, man. I'm, I'm, I'm interested then because you, you talked about in one of your posts of like kind of the low hanging fruit, like, like what is some of this low hanging fruit that we can approach and kind of help our athletes with that, that you think are missing. Like, I feel like a lot of times I talked a little bit before the podcast, like we're trying to reach for like that top, like Apple and we're missing just so many things that are like right in front of us that we could just like mm-hmm. pluck off and help our athletes with. And we just want, want to go like for the next cool thing and we're missing what's right in front of us. Yeah. I think I a post came from my, basically from a tweet. I think I thought about like one day where it was really just the idea of, you almost go go the opposite of like whatever that sporting training culture is. So like if sorry, I was thinking like in like in football, like you mentioned before, the, the sport training culture lends itself to always just like being bigger, stronger, and always like always focusing more towards lifting. And some of those hanging fruit, which like it's slowly become like more and more popular within college football. Now you see it in high school of like, hey, like we should sprint these guys. Like these guys, we should work on them being faster. People are like, oh yeah, like you're right. <laughs> like, it's kind of like a light bulb moment. Okay, so I think it's almost going into the opposite of what traditionally is done. Like within rugby, a big one is still like being bigger and stronger and doing a lot of like almost like circuits and things like that for conditioning. But now more and more people are like, oh, maybe we should actually work on getting guys faster, right? Similar thing, which is like contrary to popular belief within rugby because typically everyone just wants to lift weights. Most guys have been lifting weights since they were 14, 15 years old. And then so that's how you kind of turn that low hanging fruit of what's the opposite. Like some of me and Will talked about before within like golf and fighting. Like I've, I've worked with some fighters and like I had all three of them, like they had never lifted weights before in their entire life. <laughs> but they were three, but they had professional fighters. And their idea of lifting weights was like these kettlebell circuits they would do at the end of like jujitsu practice or at the end of uh, a, a mid session or stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, man, that's not lifted. <laughs> and they would do very, like one of them for his, for his fight in this camp. We had like a 12 week camp. The first, we didn't touch a barbell for eight weeks of it, six weeks of it. Cause he didn't need to. Like we did dumbbell, kettlebell, like almost, almost like, like EDT kind of style, like higher volume. And he was like, man, like, I feel stronger and bigger. I'm like, it's amazing what happens when you lift a little <laughs> bit of weights. <laughs> and it's like he had never, it was like a light, literally a light bulb moment for him. He's like, yeah, so I'm hitting, like hitting the pads harder. I'm hitting the bag harder. I'm like, I'm sure you are. Like, he hasn't gained any weight. Like he's a stronger dude now. He actually have muscle on you. So I think that's how it, it kind of comes. Just go the opposite of what tradition within that sport kind of is. And I think like golf. Uh, so the part of reason why me and Will, or when I came up with like the big hitters manual for golf and baseball, is that baseball almost gone backwards away from the lifting heavy. And that because of like the steroid era, I think is what was is what kind of like led led down that path of like not really lifting anymore to like. Everything's mimicking the swing. Golf is notorious for always like mimicking the swing and doing these very odd exercises 
standing on both balls and things like that. And very over like medicalized training. You want to call it training. You know, <laughs> hey, loading your fruit is like, hey man, like they hit the ball far. It's just, just vertical force output. Like you just got like, you got to be stronger. But there's more force ver- vertically hit the ball farther. But even within the book, I wrote like, like guys like Aaron Judge is Aaron Judge six six, like 270 pounds. Like, <laughs> He's a monster. Like, yeah, like the reason he hit the ball so hard. John Carl Stan hits the ball 120 miles an hour, like off the bat. Like he's sitting, he's like six five and two forty. <laughs> and that that's something that I think is like super interesting because like the the, the amount of stimulus, because the football is like the exact opposite of that fighter. You know, like that yeah. fighter knows how to control his body, knows how to yeah. like move in every situation, mm-hmm. use every ounce of like power that he has and has no like barbell and like just general strength to draw upon whereas the football player and like technique like to be a fighter like your technical skills have to be so great and football guys you know like there are football guys that have like zero idea really how to play their position and are just so strong that they've got away with it throughout their entire time and it's like now what's going to do me more good like we could put 10 more pounds in your back squat and that could help you like theoretically like that could help your force production like it could help some of these things or we could take the six months that it would take to do that because your back squat's already at like 600 pounds, like could yeah. take those six months and teach you how to play your position, like teach you how to control yeah. your body, teach you how to like understand like brace and flow with another person's body. And then yeah. it, like the, the, the return on like your investment is going to be so much greater and so much quicker and so much less wear and tear on your body. Yeah, unless like if I have control with 270 pounds, like, like I can't, I can't even do crawls, carries, like like gra- like grapple stuff like that. Like it's it's been interesting to me. Like see, I I don't have not spent much time in football. Like I didn't really play in high school. wasn't a I was not a super huge football fan. So I never wanted to work in it. And it's interesting. Like when I found when I find out now, like I know people who work in football. Like typically there's not a huge like contact prep. It's just like oh yeah, no pads for seven days or ten days <laughs> or whatever. And then like put pads on, everyone just starts whacking each other. I'm just like, don't you play you just. I thought like you were skipping something there in the middle. <laughs> like you could definitely be like doing pummeling and, and like some kind of like take like different takedown drills without pads on. You can do some bunch of crawling, like all sorts of help strength, like strength will make you better prepared to hit somebody. Well, and then the, the we, we we talked a little bit about the conditioning aspect too. Is it to me that's one of the biggest eyeballs, like or the 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 light switches for my players, the understanding what what conditioning is like they'll they'll talk about like how how in shape they are and we'll pummel and we'll grapple and we'll do some of these things and we'll do like five to ten sets of like five seconds on big break in between and the guys are gassed in between and i'm like all right so like we we want to talk about like running and doing these things for conditioning and you guys are gassed like you guys are shot so like what what is what is demanded of us in our sport, you know, and like, what is making you tired? What are you spending your energy on? Maybe, maybe it's the physical part of that. Maybe it is the like competition part of it, you know, like maybe it's psychologically stressing you enough, but like is running more tempos and doing these things and there's a place for it, but is doing more of that. Like, is that going to get you in shape that you want to be in? Like is doing these four quarter workouts. Like, is that going to get you into shape or is that the pummeling and doing like parts of your sport and segmenting that going to get you ready for it? Yeah, so the thing, like closer to the so thing, like closer to the ball, the more you have to be ready to like basically be in a fist fight with somebody every play, <laughs> and like, and so it's like, are you are you prepared to have to be grappling and fighting somebody every play? And it's like, hey man, like running is gonna help a little bit for that base. But after that, you gotta be just ready to fight somebody. <laughs> the best way to get better at fighting is practice fighting. 
And then, then the other aspect, and this is something that I've noticed too, is like, like what does competition do to like your, your fitness levels? You know, like if you, if you're a wide receiver, you're a skill guy, like you're great at, at running the tempos and you, you're, you're pretty quick. Like you, you have all these things and now we compete and you have to, you have to scan the field. You have to find different spots. You have to like process all these things. And that now, like now, how are you holding up? And I, to me, it's just, yeah. it's, I really like it because it allows us to see so many more things. Like it allows us to see how, how they're handling the stress of competition. If more people are watching, how do they do it? If less people are watching, how are they doing? If like, if they're winning, like, like if they're winning, are, are they suddenly in shape? You know, like, are they suddenly yeah. doing better compared to like, if they're losing, like then what, what, like, are they gassed now yeah. because they're losing? And then is again, I'll bring it back. Is that fourth quarter workout going to like, is that going to solve our problem? Or is this showing us what the issue is? You know, like maybe it's mentality, maybe it's understanding the game, maybe it's understanding how they move their own body. And I think, I think it just shows us way more. Yeah. That cognitive stress of, uh, of having to, like compete with somebody just adds, just adds so much more fatigue on fatigue. Like, like you said, like you can do tempos, you can do routes on air, but if the moment the defender in front of you, like when you have a DB in front of you, like you're gassed for three plays, it's like, are you really prepared? Are you really prepared for the game? And then I'm interested in how you take this and you kind of apply this to a sport that is baseball that has less free flowing action, but has, I would say even more like psychological and like, more demands individually in the moment on what's happening. And like, how, how are you taking these theories of the fighting world and the, the, the football world and applying it to your sport? The biggest one with baseball has been the low, the low hanging fruit side of it for the position players, like actually lifting, sprinting, doing a bit of like low level, low level, low intensity conditioning to get them prepared for a 142 game season. Cause I'd spot a mile side, 142 games in five months or so. So it's like one off day every like 21 days, 22 days. So it's like a ridiculous schedule. And so some of those things, those some of my learning fruits definitely helped and guys felt better come you know, August, September, which normally they feel like crap. And so hey, that's what happens when we, we train regularly, like only twice a week for five, five, six months, as opposed to like traditionally, they wouldn't really train during the season. They may train once for that. And then from the pitching side of it, uh, we took away like some of like the mindless kind of running they typically would do. Like they do these gases and poles, but like no, there's no rationale for it. It was just like tradition. And so taking away some of those things actually was some of our low, lowest hanging fruit because guys just felt better like when they go out and pitch or when they get ready for the start. And usually the starters were on like a five or six day rotation. And so that was kind of the biggest ones like for them. And then from a competitive side for the pitchers came down to what like med like med ball throws, you make competitive sometimes if you can, uh, if you have like a pocket radar and things like that. Um, for position players, it's easy because they're in the cage uh, with the hitting coach. Like every every rep has a metric to it, so exit velocity, bat speed. So they're getting that constant feedback. And within baseball, it's probably easier as well, just because you have so many games, so you're constantly like you're constantly playing, so you're constantly competing, and so you get a bit more comfortable. I remember I had a player, a player two years ago, I was in Double A. Said doesn't be he said to me one day, and like in a dugout, he was having like a rough. Like a rough, uh, rough last couple of games. And he just goes like, TK, like baseball is a sport built on failure. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, what do you think about it from the hitting side? He's like, you get four times to hit a ball. And that's it. And he's like, and if you go two out of four, that's a great day. Mm-hmm. He's like, you go one out of four, that's still a pretty good day. He's like, if you hit, it, if you hit the ball 25% of the time, like you're a good hitter. 
And I was like, yeah, it's a good point. Actually. I never actually thought looking at that, looking at it that way. But he, that's why he said like he never gets mad. He's like, yeah, I was like, if I strike out, strike out. It's just like, and that's like, I have a short term memory where you strike out next time. And he, and he always talked about how uh, baseball is like a sport built on failure because you're constantly, you're constantly getting reps in essentially of like, can you hit the ball? Can you not hit the ball? <laughs> and that, that, that short term failure is something I, I, I'm interested in diving into for my own sport selfishly then is like, how, how, how do you think the best attempt to not, I don't know, I want to say train that in, but allow an athlete to understand it. Is it like, so, so, cause football is different. Like football is a, a sport based on success. Like if you get torched, if you only win 25% of your plays, like you're never like you're screwed. Like you're, you're costing your team yeah. a game, but you'll see. So like, it's that mindset shift. If you have to win every play, you have to win every play and you'll see, let's say a corner, like get beat. And then he's, he's mentally ruined or a wide receiver, drop a ball, a running back fumble. And as soon as that happens, you see it repeated like again, cause now it's yeah. like trigger. I failed. It's over. So like, what would your, like maybe speculate, maybe you have a more well thought out thing. I don't mean to throw this on you, but what would be your I kind of know. approach to um, getting them into that mindset of like that baseball mindset? Mm. That's a good question. Maybe, maybe, maybe it starts with just like the way we frame it, the way like, like the words you is like, Hey, like, I'm not gonna win every play, like, <laughs> like maybe and be accepting of that. Like maybe we should stop saying like win every play because it's just not reality. Because like in our he's playing like basketball, that's what I played a lot, like most of the time growing up. Of like in your head, you think you're like you want to make every shot, but you don't really tell yourself you want to make every shot because you know it's just not realistic. And if you miss one, even miss the first two or three, you're like I'm open again. I'm shooting that bitch. Like, <laughs> it's like it's a short term memory. So I think. Yeah, so maybe maybe within football because you don't get as many opportunities to where like you're for sure you be challenged. And even obviously if you're a DB, you're not be challenged every play. So maybe it just comes down to like just changing the verbiage and changing the words used. And not and not saying win every play and just say compete every play. Because like if you go if like if you go if you go hundred percent, but say you got like you kind of trouble DeAndre Hopkins, he's gonna beat you sometimes. <laughs> like that's just the way it is. And that's something that just triggered when you when you said the basketball thing is like maybe part of it is again, making them fail a little bit more in practice, you know, like oh. in bringing them up in the way of, and cause like you have those ballers. So this, like, that's what made me think is like, you have the basketball players and these guys are like, like they approach it. Like they have swag, they get up there. Like they get yeah. beat, they come back with that same attitude. Like whatever, dude, yeah. like I'm going to pick you off next time. But yeah. then I think you have the guys that, that have played football their entire life. And and maybe it's even like wrestling, you know, like you, you have that football wrestling, like maybe even track and field background to where it's not like basketball. It's not like baseball and they don't get that experience. And now it's when they get beat, they got beat and it's over and it's on them, you know, and maybe it's in yeah. training. I'm just working through thoughts here. Maybe in training it's with those guys, like our number one job is to get them to fail more and get them to understand that failure and get them to see how they respond to that failure. And I think part of it is gamifying. Cause I look back at, kind of my training going through it. And man, once I reached a certain point in my playing career, when I was good enough at my like spot, like I never lost, like I never lost in practice. Yeah. The only time like I faced somebody that would be good enough to beat me was in a game, you know? And then the only time I'd lose is in a game when it actually mattered. So like yeah. taking somebody like somebody like me in that practice and now exposing me to situations where I'm going to get beat regularly. And like, obviously it's not great for the confidence, but who cares about the confidence when our job is to like, get you ready for the game day rather than, so like your first time experiencing that your first time being in that situation again is not when it matters. It's not when like, that's when we, we should not be figuring that out in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I give an example, like when I was coaching 
a youth basketball team, a couple of youth basketball teams back in London. I had one kid, like his mom was from Hong Kong, his dad was from Lithuania. This kid could hoop. Like he was on, he was on my 13 under team. He was 10 years old. He was a starting point guard, like to get get buckets. Like no one could guard him. But in, he he hated me in practice because in practice I put I, I had people double team him. <laughs> yes. in practice. And he would get so anytime we anytime we had anytime it was like full court, even like in half court, like there'd be a double team. Either already, either he would start double team or like a double team would come. And he would get so mad at me. If like, this isn't fair, this isn't fair. I was like, I'm like, it should, like, it's not fair. It's not fair for you to get me to let you dominate practice. I was like, so most of them, I was like, what's going to make you better? You beating the double team every day or you dominate in practice like you do and get some games. And it's like, that's the reason I told him, like, that's the reason, the reason you play up. I've told his parents that too, like, the reason he plays up and plays with 12, 13 year olds at 10 is because the 10 year old game was too easy. He's doing well in his 12, 13 year old league, but it's like, maybe I have to add more challenges or he's not going to, or he's not going to get better. Yeah, and it, it brings back uh, Brett Adams is the one that said this. He's like, in every in every practice or every every training environment, you should always have somebody that you know you can beat. You should always have somebody that is on the same level as you, and you should always have somebody that can beat you. And he he was setting it up, and he set this kind of environment up in a way of like that way you know if the guy that you always beat, you always should beat. If he's beating you, that's when you know you're being a piece of shit that day, and something's really wrong. Yeah. If the if the guy that you're matched evenly with, if you are, that's kind of like your marker. Like if that, that yeah. guy's 50, 50, same skill level. If you guys are going 50, 50, that's when you're on that same, that's the guy that challenges you. And you should always have that guy that beats you every time. So you have something to reach for and kind of like, kind of push for. And I, I, it's yeah. that, that kind of way of setting up your environments and just like thinking about it now, not just in the what's happening, what's the skill, like, what are we working on? But now we take it a little bit, even like emotionally and skill set wise and setting it up, I don't want to say holistically because holistically is kind of butchered now. Like it's always holistic, yeah, but yeah. in a holistic manner, you know. I do say I think gamifying things, adding different challenges. Like I think of like sometimes you know, like basketball practice, we do like king, you know, like king of the hill, like king of the court, like one on one. But like some of you start off with, oh, like it's just like first person to score stays on, loser goes off, next person out. So sometimes we start with just like free for all, like goes like go score. And then I might change the rules and be like, oh, now you only have three dribbles. You have three <laughs> dribbles to go score. Or like you have to go, or you have to score on your left side. Or sometimes you can go like, you get one dribble and like figure, like be efficient with that one dribble. Make sure you're going somewhere to try and score. And it's different constraints and seeing people how they then adapt to that. But then also like, guys are like, you, like, you should fail at that. Like no one's going to score every time because, because like, oh, I, I can do everything. It's like, no, like, you make it more challenging. And maybe instead of starting from the top of the key, you start from the baseline, or maybe you start from free throw line extended and front at, at the center wing, and I'm just starting at half court and got three dribbles. It's like, where are you going? I should, I should be honest. Like, where are you going to go with three dribbles from half court? Like, well, that's, that's for you to figure out. Like, <laughs> and then some, it, like taking something like that again, and I, I'm interested in the, the the baseball world because it's something that's pretty pretty new to me, just because I've never played it. But it, it, mm. how would you take that constraint led approach to? if you were going to formulate like a hitting practice or something in that regard, like how, how would you go about formulating that for a hitter? Yeah. Like I think for, hey, I'm, I'm not even entirely sure. I think it comes down to like do, doing very, like very pitching. I think like, like if you have like a velo machine, but also someone who can like short toss it, things like that, I think are very are useful. Um, I know there's, there's like some research in like pitch shape and like pitch recognition. They're recognizing very like, different pitches, but it's just hard because within a sport like baseball, there's just not as many, it's not as many, there's not really any variables other than one at, at a time. So that's what makes it harder. 
and if you're a pitcher, obviously there's not really any variables because you are the variable. You're, yeah, you're kind of you kind of control the variable. Like, yeah. you, like your job yeah. then is, and that I think that's that's, that's kind of interesting because that's kind of the one sport. Unless I'm blanking on something, but it's like it's the one sport where you kind of, like you said, you are the variable. Like now, now yeah. you're spicing it up. Like I, I, I've never played baseball, but so I don't think there's a ton that the batter can really do to like mess up that variable. You know, like it's your yeah. entire job to create the environment. Yeah, hundred percent. Like our. Our pitching coordinator has a saying. He always tells all our pitchers, and he always tells them, "Be the be the hunter, don't be the prey." <laughs> he's like, he's like, he's like, nothing starts without you. The game, the game is based around you starting. So like, you like, you you know where the ball's going. They have no idea. Like, be the hunter. <laughs> I like that. That's <laughs> awesome. Um, before we get to the rapid fire round, uh, I'm interested in, and this is a question I love asking coaches: is uh, what kind of has been your biggest eye opener to like your training recently? Like something that kind of tied everything together or something that I should like, Oh shit, I should, I should have known that before, but it's kind of been that big eye opener for you recently. Hmm. I'll say probably less is more sometimes with, uh, with jumps and ply, like plyometrics. So even though like, I'm big into like the, like the Burger Shansky realm, like the def- I definitely spent like, the last couple of years doing, just doing too much too soon. And so like, Hey, so have you taken this jump all the way to the end point before I like we go loaded or we go accelerated or, we go single leg. It's like they're still getting improvements from just like a regular boss jump or something. Like let's keep doing that. I think that's probably a big one. Like I, re- I rewatched uh, Natalia Berkashansky's presentation on like the Strength Coach Network. That's a big one. Then a rabbit, rabbit hole. I was like, looking at my own like program program in terms of like jumping. I was like, I don't think I was doing too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like the point of like they're still getting something out of the the, the program as we're going. So like, why, why are we switching up? Cause that's something that like personally I struggle with too, is like, I, I want to add like kind of the, the next variation a little bit too soon, but you're yeah. like, you're like, well, he's progressed. Like if you were to take a logical and like non-emotional, take your bias out as a coach, like your emotions out as a coach, you would look at that and be like, well, let's like keep milking this cow. But like a lot of times, like I'm, I'm the same way of like, all right, like we did that one for three weeks. Like let's move on to the next one, like next progression, yeah. next type of thing and to, to continue to progress you, but you were, we still had more milk in that cow. Yeah, exactly. And then we can transition into the rapid fire rounds. And these kind of questions I ask all the guests. And the, the first one is kind of what are your favorite books and that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? They can be sports performance or they cannot be. It doesn't matter. Oh, man. What's, what's the book? This is a book by Randy Posh. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, okay. I, I, have to, I have to go find this book. <laughs> no problem. Because like, it's, it's like one of my words. One of my favorite books. And I read it during lockdown, and I tell I tell everyone to read it. And it's like short; it's only like maybe a hundred pages or so. Uh, the last lecture. There you go. What What was that again? Uh, the last lecture. Okay, last lecture. Yeah, by, by Randy Posh. And what's that one about? Um, so it's this, it's this lecture at lecture at MIT, and he's diagnosed with I believe it's pan- pancreatic cancer, and it's like it's terminal. And it's basically him writing like about his last like year or so. And he actually did. And he actually did an official like last lecture because I guess at MIT at the time, like before lectures retire, like professors retire, they like do a last lecture. And so he did it. And he wrote it. He basically wrote the whole lecture in the book and like published it. And uh, you actually find the lecture actually on YouTube too. It was only like in the early 2000s. He did it. And you know, he eventually like he died and everything. But like the book is so good. 
That, that's kind of sweet. Uh, yeah. Kind of the uh, the last lecture approach to like how how can how can you tie that to your life? You know. Yeah, and it's like hey, it's, it's like real. It talks about like prioritizing your life, what's really important, who are the people you really care about, and things like that, and like going out to feel like your dreams too. But what do you want to do in life? It's like you just you're doing something because someone told you to do it. It's like do what you actually enjoy. You mean it's not all about sets and raps and arguing about Olympic lifts? <laughs> Apparently, it's not. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's I, a, I mean, my, my world. My world was shattered after I read it, but that's right. <laughs> Well, I'll have to check that one out. Um, the, the next question, and um, this is one that kind of ties this whole podcast together and kind of brings me into the world of um, sports performance deeper into these rabbit holes. But who's a guest that you think we should have on the podcast? Ooh, have you had on? Have you had, have you had Jay DeMeo on? I have not. Yeah, so, yeah I think Jay would be a good one. The great, the great, the great beard himself. Been around for, coaching for a long time. He's been, at, I think he's been at University of Richmond almost 20 years now. And it was at a couple of places before that. Boom. I'll have to reach out to him. The next one, uh, what's kind of next for you? Maybe it's within the one, like next year, maybe it's five years from now. Maybe it's just when quarantine's over, but what's kind of that next <laughs> big goal or thing that you're reaching, reaching for or looking forward to? Uh, I think the next big thing for me is going to be leaving the country and traveling. I, I, I love traveling. Like some, I, I think if I had another dream, maybe eventually job I'll, I'll do is I'll just like travel. <laughs> so my next one, actually, I want to go, I want to, go to Thailand and stay in Thailand for about three or four months and just like train Muay Thai for three or four months and like Phuket or Chiang Mai or something. That, go that, to a Buddhist temple and hang out. <laughs> so my buddy, my buddy actually just got done. He did that last year. He went there, I think it was like two or three months. It was not, it wasn't a missions trip, but it was like a volunteering trip where they were building houses. But yeah. he basically did the same thing. And he said it was the coolest experience of his entire life. He said it was like, yeah, so cool. Like he sold me on that idea. So like, you, <laughs> you can't be talking to me about this because now it's going to make me like want to do it again. And I was like, he said, it's like one of the coolest experiences he's ever had. Oh yeah, I can't. I can't wait to do it. Like I plan. I plan to go. I want. I plan actually was supposed to go this year. I was supposed to actually be there now, but then because of COVID, everything I get refunded and canceled. But I plan to go eventually the next year or a year after that. I just want to go to Thailand for like at least three months. I want to like train more Thai, explore, hang out, go to a couple of different countries around there. Also, go out to Singapore and Taiwan, Indonesia, Malaysia. And that's. I mean, that's the stuff that kind of. What what I kind of geek out about too is trying to be able to take that and maybe this is a woo wooey, but like the ability to get out of the gym, dude, and like do things in life and then bring it back to what your job is and bring it back to, I just, to me, it just helps us understand what we're doing. It gives us an outside perspective to be like, man, some of the stuff we're doing and arguing about is so stupid <laughs> and like yeah, yeah. just kind of resets yeah. things for us. Like that that's something yeah. like I'm totally on the same page with you about. 100% agree. Like, I think always like traveling in general, whether it's out of country, just other like states, go to national parks, like seeing other things, parts of the world, another country, like gives you just a, a greater perspective on life. And part of it is, I think, some of it that you realize how insignificant you are in the big world. <laughs> like, I think it's that sense of it too. Um, and so that's why I've, like, I've always loved it. Like, like, my mom was in the army growing up, so we traveled a lot as, like, as a kid. I've been to a couple of other countries, lived in a couple of countries. And so that's why I have like the affinity for it. And I'm always over like, I'm like, what are we doing? Oh, we can leave tomorrow, dude. Fuck it, let's go. <laughs> like, I actually, when I flew, I flew to London, I flew basically on two day notice. I got my visa. 
my student visa and I flew out like a day or two later. <laughs> like didn't have didn't have a didn't have a place to stay right away. I literally had to text Kia, who then texted Sam Portland and Portland was and he's like, hey, uh former intern TK is like flying to London at this time. Can you pick up from the airport? And then Sam didn't let me stay at his house, him and his parents' house for like three days. And then never never met him before. Picked me up from the airport, went to a grocery store, like <laughs> And big, we we figured it out though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like he figured things out. Like, I'm people are I'm terrible at planning. Like, I've I went to I went to France from like from London last year. And yeah, I think I put the flight a day out. So I was like, I never been to Paris. I was like, oh, you should go. And I was like, I go today. <laughs> like, the flight's like, <laughs> flight's like the flight's like thirty bucks if that. And so I literally like put the flight like for a couple hours later. Went to the airport, got a plane. <laughs> And, and like again, put, put, put the put the hostel as I was in the airport waiting. And again, like I don't know, like I, I just feel like that's so. It's something that I think our field needs to do a little bit more of. You know, like just book a flight, like fly around, just take an outside perspective a little bit. Just from what what yeah. I've seen is yeah. like I'm reading uh, Graham Hancock's Fingerprints of a God right now. And like, oh my god, I want, I want to read that book. Diving deep, I'm deep into this yeah. rabbit hole, man, of like some yeah. of the stuff. And it, it's funny because this whole thing is like, uh, there's so many things just accepted for facts just because they've been accepted for facts, like, yeah, for so long. You know, like that's his yeah. entire like approach in talking about this. I was like, holy shit, like that's our field, you know, like, like, yeah. regardless of like taking an outside look, regardless of like being able to take a step back and like, realize some of these things and do that it's like just nope this is it like this is what's important this is what we should argue about and this type of stuff yeah. and I, was, I was just reading this book yeah but yeah, i'm deep into that rabbit hole deep into the graham hancock rabbit hole oh i, I, need, to, I need to read that book actually if someone if someone listening wants to buy that book for christmas i'll appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the last question of this podcast before we continue to rant about our <laughs> our travels but um when all this coaching stuff's over when uh when everything that you want to do is over and like, what do you kind of want your legacy to be? Ooh, I think someone who cared, I, I, I want my legacy to be like the, to be the players, the players I've worked with and like how they go on to treat like other people and they become coaches themselves, how they go on to treat their coaches. So I think one of some, I think I, think I tweeted about this like a couple, a couple months ago, like just one of the coolest moments of my coaching career was when a player sent me a video of, a, of his first house he just bought like his daughter playing in her new room and she's like two years old. And it was like, it made, made me like tear up because it's like, that's the reason why I do this job. And so like stuff like that, like, well, player, the player, the player, that player still texted me and stuff like that, who I coached like years ago. And some of them still follow me on social media and stuff like that. That's, that's like the legacy of those players. That, that's freaking awesome. Well, coach, we did it. We, we finished up the podcast. We, we survived <laughs> all the way through. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.